2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Grace Wan in for Kim. Coming up on Forum, while working on a project as a graduate student at MIT, Dr. Joy Bullamwini noticed that the facial recognition technology she was using did not register her face. Curious, she donned a white Halloween mask lying around her office and tried again. Bingo. The computer responded. What Dr. Bulamwini discovered was not a glitch in the code, but a troubling bias that had been baked into the system. In her new book, Unmasking AI, Dr. Bulamwini writes about how this discovery led her to a career of digital activism. We talk to her after this news. This is Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. Last month, President Biden issued a sweeping executive order aimed at trying to embed safety and security into artificial intelligence systems. That order was informed in part by the work and input of Dr. Joy Bulamwini. Her groundbreaking research revealed that facial recognition technology, which was being widely used and touted as accurate, was rife with problems. For example, it was great at identifying white males, but dismal at seeing women with darker skin. This work, coupled with her research on algorithmic bias, has helped reframe considerations around artificial intelligence. Dr. Bula chronicles her journey as a computer scientist and digital activist in Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. She's a Rhodes Scholar. She has a PhD from MIT. She was even featured in a beauty campaign for the Skinline Olay. In short, she's a big thinker and has a broad reach. We're so excited to have her here. Welcome to Forum, Dr. Bula
3: Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Excited to be here. <laughs> such a pleasure.
2: You know, the more I read about artificial intelligence, the more I've come to believe that we should interrogate interrogate that term. I mean, is it really intelligent?
3: Uh, that's such a great question. It's certainly artificial. I can <laughs> uh, say that. But when it comes to uh, intelligence and creativity, I think uh, there's much to be explored. Well, in your
2: book, you write that we often think that machines are clear thinkers, they're un- it's unbiased, they're just doing math or some kind of like Dr. Spock-like computation. But your research on the coded gaze what that I referred to in the introduction, it found that not to be true. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
3: Uh, Yes. So as you shared, when I was a graduate student at MIT, I literally had the experience of putting on a white mask on my dark skin in order for a computer system, a machine to detect my face. And so That is the experience that introduced me to something I call the coded gaze. And so like the male gaze or the white gaze, the coded gaze is around who has the power to shape technologies and thus whose priorities get embedded in the technologies that are created, as well as prejudices, uh, whether conscious or unconscious. And so it was starting to question my notion that, hey, computers are supposed to be neutral. We know humans are biased. We've been known that, right? (laughs) But part of why I got into uh, computer science a little bit was to deal with abstraction and be in this uh, seemingly infinite world where I didn't necessarily have to grapple with messier social issues. And so I find it a bit ironic on my whole journey that it was exploring my creativity and trying to be cocooned from the isms of the world that led me straight back to it because the technologies do reflect in many ways, issues in society.
2: Well, you know, you were, so you were doing this research. You were trying to create what you call an aspire mirror to I think you were supposed to be able to look in the mirror and then see your face sort of merge into the face of somebody who you had admired. And that's how you discovered this problem. Good thing you had that white Halloween mask laying around your office.
3: Right, you know, and it was I wanted to look like Serena Williams. Now I would probably put Coco Gauff on there just to (laughs) who doesn't? Who doesn't? (laughs) (laughs) So it was that was how it got started. I was fascinated to
2: read in your book that
3: even something
2: like a camera, an analog camera, has bias built into it. How does that work?
3: That's such a great starting point because oftentimes when we look at technologies, we don't always think about their histories. And so when we think about analog cameras and how they were initially uh, created, we are introduced to something called the Shirley card. So with uh, initial cameras, when you were using chemicals in order to develop film, the chemicals had to be calibrated to expose the film. And in order to do that, they had a standard. And that standard was an image of a white woman uh, named Shirley. There were others, but it ended up being better known as the uh, Shirley card. And so literally the point of reference, right, whose priorities, whose preferences was made to be optimizing for people who look like what was represented on the Shirley card. So for lighter skinned, Uh, individuals. And it was actually furniture companies and uh, chocolate companies, they complained, right? (laughs) We're not seeing the differences between the milk chocolate and the dark chocolate. I want to see that fine grain in the mahogany. Dark people got a windfall, you know? Next thing you know, you're seeing companies advertising, so good it can shoot a black horse at night. I'm like, well, I guess that means I can be detected, you know, (laughs) or well exposed. And I'm sure people uh who have old photo albums you can see which skin uh types are exposed better uh than others but these were choices right Right. and so that change that happened after the complaints uh showed that it wasn't inevitable it wasn't just because of physics but these were uh defaults and defaults aren't neutral that's a big lesson we can take from the history of the development of camera technology.
2: Well, staying with the camera, even in modern day, you, you mentioned that Oprah Winfrey uses used in her show a particular type of camera because of this issue.
3: Oh, yes. So you had the Philips LDK series, which had two uh, processing chips, uh, one for darker skin tones, one for lighter skin tones. And of course, for producers who were thinking of a show that was hosted by somebody with dark skin, these were considerations that uh, they thought through and went and looked for the equipment that would work for that context.
2: You mentioned that when you discovered this problem of being recognized by this computer technology, you didn't necessarily want to take up the cause of this. You were initially a little hesitant to go down this research path. Why is that?
3: Oh, many reasons. One, again, I I got into computer science to avoid messy human issues. (laughs) So (laughs) this was taking me away from avoiding messy human issues, racism, sexism, colorism, ableism. Oh, my goodness. This is not what I thought I got myself into so i was so enamored by the idea of building the technologies of the future uh, building robots and that's really how i started as a tech optimist and in many ways i still am so doing this research was really having to acknowledge for myself that this field i love didn't embrace me in the ways i would uh, hope And I also was warned by well-meaning colleagues around me that if I did this type of work, I might be pigeonholed. I might be attacked. uh, And it could be a risky career move. And I can't say they were wrong. (laughs) Attacks Mm. uh, did come. It did help that I had aspirations of being a poet. You know, so career wise, it was already going to be a bit of a precarious path.
2: For me. <laughs> uh, well, we're definitely going to get into that. But I wanted to break down that term facial recognition because as you say, it's, not, it's, it's sometimes a misnomer for what we're really talking about. There's facial verification, there's facial identification. Can you explain the difference and why that difference is important?
3: Sure. I like to use the term facial recognition technologies, plural, as a way of emphasizing there are many ways a computer or a machine can analyze a human face. And the first type that I think about is really face detection. So this is what wasn't working for me when I was a grad student at MIT, trying to get my Aspire Mirror project to make me look like Serena Williams. (laughs) And uh, my face wasn't uh, detected. So I think of it as answering the question, is there a face? In my in my right. case, it was no, but the white mask was there. So that's face detection. Then you have a whole other set of questions around what kind of face is this? So it could be guessing the gender of the face, guessing the age of the face, attempting to guess the uh, ethnicity or race of the face. And so you might have gender classification, for example, which is what my... MIT research focused on how good are systems from IBM, Microsoft, later on Amazon, when it comes to guessing the face, right? So right now we have two types of questions we're answering with a different sets of facial recognition technologies. Is there a face? That's face detection. What kind of face? That can be gender classification. And then we get to what industry people tend to call facial recognition, which is whose face is this, right? Getting at identity. So you asked earlier, what's the difference? You might've heard terms like verification or identification. So there are two main flavors of facial recognition. The first type is facial verification, one-to-one matching. Think about unlocking your phone. That's an example. And then this is the one that gets the headlines, the kind you might see uh, in Mission Impossible, where it's one-to-many detection. So there's a surveillance camera, there's a grainy image, and then out of nowhere, is that Tom Cruise, you know? Right. That is uh, facial identification, uh, one-to-many. And the reason I share the differences throughout the book is those definitions matter when we start to talk about policy and we start to talk about regulation. If you, for example, only regulate facial uh, verification, then you still have tools for mass surveillance. So you could say one-to-one matching, we're saying we're gonna regulate that, but it's fine for police to look at, uh, let's say surveillance footage, right? If you say we're only going to do facial identification, then uses like the IRS adopting a face verification vendor would not be under that type of legislation. And then you also have instances where people might want to do digital profiling, essentially searching people's faces by gender, uh, by skin color, uh, even things like do you have a beard or not. Uh, So there are other areas we would want to put in protections right so it's really important that we have a broad understanding and broad enough definitions around facial uh, recognition technologies when we're discussing it so areas of harms don't fall through the cracks
2: well we're talking with dr joy bulamwini about our new book Uh, unmasking ai which chronicles her efforts to put humanity into ai we'll have more after this break Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. We're talking with Joy, Dr. Joy Boulamwini. She has a new book, Unmasking AI, which chronicles her efforts to bring humanity back to technology and her fight for algorithmic justice. Dr. Bulwamini is a Rhodes Scholar. She holds a PhD from MIT, and her cutting-edge work on the pitfalls of facial recognition technology led her to found the Algorithmic Justice League, which seeks to root out algorithmic bias. And, you know, we want to hear from you. Have you been misidentified by facial recognition technology? What happened? And did you use, have you used image generators like DAL-E or Stable Diffusion XL? Have you noticed racial gender or other stereotypes in the images you get? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram or Discord. We're at KQED Forum or give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Uh, So, Dr. Joy, as I think you like to be called, um, I was reading a recent Washington Post investigation into kind of the gender and racial biases baked into those image generators that I was referring to, Stable Diffusion, Doll E. Uh, These are apps that allow you to enter terms like attractive person, and then you get AI-created images. Uh, The investigation found that the apps produced mostly images of white women as attractive. What... when? I'm sure you I know you're familiar with these. Tell me a little bit about what accounts for this bias in them and the harms that they cause.
3: Absolutely. In addition to that Washington Post piece, I think your listeners might also be interested in a piece that Bloomberg News did with stable diffusion, where with Washington Post, they were looking at attractiveness. Here, Bloomberg was looking at low-paying jobs and high-paying jobs. So when they gave prompts for high-paying jobs, let's say CEO or architect, uh, those images uh, produced were overwhelmingly uh, white men. And then when they gave prompts for low-paying jobs, uh, those tended to be more people of color and more uh, women, so roles like uh, social worker, fast food worker. And then when it came to images of criminal uh, stereotypes, like, let's say, drug dealer or inmate or terrorist, you saw more men of color. And I bring up these examples in addition to the one you mentioned uh, earlier, because sometimes we hear that AI is a mirror. And so it's reflecting uh, what's happening in society. And what this Bloomberg News piece showed is that AI can be a kaleidoscope of distortion. And let me tell you what I mean by that. So going back to prompts for high-paying jobs, one of those high-paying jobs was uh, show-me-an-image for an architect. And even though in the U.S., women make about 34% of architects, the model only showed women as architects around 3% of the time. And so this is not uh, just reflecting society, it's actually regressing. And I'm not saying we had reached parity uh, yet, but it's extremely concerning when the technologies that are meant to bring us into the future are actually taking us uh, back to uh, the past. And to your question, uh, how does this happen? Oftentimes it happens because of the types of images that are used to train uh, these systems. And so you might hear the term machine learning when people talk about how AI is created. And machine learning means having a set of data that uh, algorithmic system, an AI model, machine learning model is trained on. So if that data is not representative of the world, then you're going to get these skews, and then these skews can be amplified like what we were seeing with the representation um, uh, of architects or what we've seen with facial recognition uh, technologies that show uh, bias towards people uh, with darker skin or bias towards uh, more elderly uh, people uh, as well.
2: I think this is what you say in your book is that data is destiny that the system is as good as the inputs that we put into it. So is getting better data the answer to solving these issues?
3: I initially thought of technical solutions to what I viewed as technical problems, right? So just like you're saying, okay, if data is destiny and we have skewed data sets, why don't we just make the data more inclusive? Problem solved. (laughs) And as I was going down that path, I actually, came to understand it was more complicated than that. Um, One on the technical side, but also on the social side. So I'll start with the technical side. Many existing data collection processes for training AI systems uh, work by scraping data that's readily available. So that means people are not being asked for consent. And in the book, I talk about how when I learned to do computer vision, I was complicit in these practices. If the data was online, it was there for the taking. And if I asked my colleagues, uh, should we get more uh, permissions? I got the sharp elbow. Like, why are you going to make our <laughs> life harder? <laughs> right? Take the exemption and run. Do your job, kid. You know, so I struggled with this e- even to understand, oh, I can take the images of people's faces, put it in a data set and do my research without even really um, being required right, to uh, ask them. And so there are issues of privacy and consent when it comes to any type of uh, data collection efforts involving uh, humans. And so there's that piece of it. So it's not just, let's go get the data. And I believe Google came under fire um, when it was reported one of their subcontractors to diversify their face data sets was getting images of um, the faces of homeless people. Hmm. So... As you can see, there can be problems just with the actual gathering of the data itself. So how the data is gathered is important. Uh, But then we want to think about the societal impact. And I like to keep in mind the phrase accurate systems can be abused. So let's go back to facial recognition technologies. If we had accurate facial identification, which we don't, we now have created very powerful tools for a surveillance state, for authoritarian government, right? So yes you can say my phone is tracked etc you can leave your phone at home your face <laughs> a little bit harder though in la i don't know but that <laughs> aside <laughs> right and so i really had to grapple with not just um how accurate our systems but how are they being used and there and are they being used in ways that benefit society or harm society and who gets to reap the benefits and who has to endure the burdens and so i came to understand this work not from a technical lens which is what i was initially trained to do as a computer scientist but more from a socio-technical lens Uh, as well, questioning the processes, questioning the power dynamics, questioning potential abuses and current abuses as part of the entire analysis of developing AI systems.
2: Well, we're talking about the bias that's baked into artificial intelligence with Dr. Joy Bulamwini. She has a new book, Unmasking AI, that chronicles her efforts to bring humanity back to technology. She's done some cutting edge research on this. She's advised President Biden, and we're gonna talk about the executive order soon. But we want to hear from you. Have you been misidentified by facial recognition technology? Uh, What are your questions for Dr. Joy? And are you somebody who works in AI or tech? How do you talk about, think about, or code against bias? Email your comments or questions to form at kqed.org or give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Um, so you were talking about, you know, what you're trying to do to make sure that the data is, it's not just about data, but it's, you know, we're, we're looking at a multifaceted way to handle the problems that are inherent in these systems. And I, I was curious about another aspect of your work. When you're, when you're saying about protecting ourselves against AI, you noted that there's this Tendency, what you call long termism, where people look at AI and say, oh my God, the robots are coming for us. This is this fear, possibly fueled by fact, possibly fueled by science fiction, that AI will allow computers to take over our world.
3: Is that a concern you share? I do not believe in super-intelligent systems uh, taking over the world, uh, Terminator style. (laughs) Phew.
2: Okay, good. I'm glad we got that out there.
3: (laughs) However, I am concerned about systems like lethal autonomous weapons. So even with the AI systems that we currently have, think about a drone with a gun, with facial recognition. Accurate or not, it can wreak havoc and giving that kill decision uh, to a machine with no moralities, no values, no human connection to the impact of that decision is extremely dangerous and something that uh, can happen now. This is why I support the campaign uh, to stop killer robots. I also think it's important to think about the ways in which AI can kill us slowly. And to this, I look at the concept of structural violence. So we know immediate acute violence, a gun shoots, the bullets hit, the bombs are dropped, instant devastation. Structural violence talks about the conditions and environments that are created that compromise people's life opportunities leads to less quality life and also shorter lifespans. And so that could look like not having access to adequate health care that can look like living in a place that is Uh, highly polluted, where one neighborhood uh, has to deal with the aftermath of chemical processing and uh, other neighborhoods um, are protected uh, from that. So when I think about AI systems being used to determine, for example, who has access uh, to health care or insurance and so forth, I really think of X-risk. Some would think of that as existential risk, which is the Terminator situation as really the risk to the x coded those who can be condemned, convicted, exploited, extorted, excluded from opportunity because of AI systems. So we don't have to have super intelligent uh, AI in order to have very serious and grave uh, harms and concerns. I think about Portia Woodruff. She was arrested eight months pregnant due to facial recognition misidentification powered by AI. She reported having contractions while she was sitting in the holding cell hmm. and had to be rushed to the emergency room when they finally let her go, putting two lives. those There were two beings right mm-hmm. there um, that were being uh, X-coded. And so... For me, with notions of uh, long-termism or effective altruism and so forth, I get concerned when those types of conversations miss people like Portia Woodruff. Right. Well, Noel on Discord writes, it's
2: artificial cleverness, not intelligence. I think referring back to our original conversation. And then Michael tweets, computer programmers traditionally could not imagine people with needs different from their own. That's why so much software eliminates human interaction, which programmers, typically introverts, find difficult and unnecessary. Does that resonate with you, Dr. Joy?
3: I definitely hear what is being said in terms of who are the people building these systems and what are their experiences of life, (laughs) right? You know, uh, what might, uh, let's say, 20-something software engineers conceive of um, as being a priority uh, versus somebody in their 70s or their uh 80s and so i do think looking at the creators of technology and asking if they reflect society if their life experiences uh, reflect society as well because oftentimes in the work that i was doing with auditing ai systems when i would talk shop with these tech teams I didn't find evil doers behind the terminal trying to hurt people. <laughs> Oftentimes, it was "Oops, my bad." I didn't really think about that. In some cases, and in other cases, which I think we really have to grapple with, I remember uh, somebody who was in charge of uh, quality assurance uh, for a biometric. Uh, company right the type that might do facial recognition and so forth reaching out and uh sharing i guess confessing you know we get all kinds of <laughs> reports at ajl but saying that while they were doing that work they knew these systems didn't work as well on certain groups of people dark-skinned people uh, in particular but to add those checks would have made their job harder. Mm. And so they decided uh, to ignore it. So sometimes it is ignorance. sometimes it's uh, intentional deprioritization. Both are issues and both are still uh, commentary of who has the power to decide, who is in charge of the companies, who's in charge of the uh, product teams and who's also implementing.
2: Well, before our next break, I want to bring in a caller. Ariel from San Francisco, welcome to Forum.
5: Thank you. Uh, Thanks for the conversation. Uh, Earlier this week, I was at a UCSF symposium on algorithmic justice, looking at how to get to algorithmic justice um, around health, right? And so I was um, struck by the conversations about how to remove bias from algorithm uh, algorithms, for example, making decisions around who gets organ transplants. And what I was um, worried about is, you know, if we make decisions about organ transplants, folks who have already benefited from structural advantage for years will then again benefit, right, if the algorithm decides that's where the organ will survive longest, right? Um, and so my question is, how do we get to algorithmic justice and not just algorithmic equality, which would end up perpetuating injustice, and inequity, um, by saying, let's start from an equal playing field uh, when we're all walking in uh, with advantages and disadvantages that have been structured a long time ago? What a
2: great question, Ariel. Thanks for joining our conversation. We have a minute before the break, Dr. Joy. So I, it's a big question. So break it down for us.
3: Yes, I think this question of triage cannot be outsourced to uh, automated systems as tempting uh, as that is. And I would underscore the fact that Uh, out parity, statistical parity, right? Just everyone gets the same thing through an AI system does not address structural inequality. And so it does mean we can't just look at technical solutions. We have to have a socio-technical lens. And at times that can be a choice of prioritizing groups that have been historically and currently uh, marginalized. So I think that's a great uh, question and it comes down to our values.
2: Well, we're talking with Dr. Joy Bulamwini about her new book, Unmasking AI, and we're getting at issues about justice, fairness in the technology that's embedded in artificial intelligence, and we'd love to hear from you. Do you work in AI or tech, and how do you talk about or think about these issues or code against bias, and have you been a victim of wrong facial technology, misidentified, what happened to you? You can email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord. We're at KQED Forum. And as always, you can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Pick up your phone, hopefully it correctly identifies your face and unlocks, and give us a call now. More after this break, I'm Grace Wan in Framina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in Fermina Kim. We're talking with Dr. Joy Bulamwini about her new book, Unmasking AI. It's chronicling her efforts to bring humanity back to technology. It's also so much more than that, and it is available at an independent bookseller near you. Um, Dr. Bulamwini is a Rhodes Scholar. She holds a PhD from MIT, and she's done some cutting-edge work in bias in artificial intelligence. We'd love to hear from you. Have you noticed any racial, gender, or other stereotypes in AI AI technology that you've used, email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org or give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Let's go right back to the phones. We've got Abby from San Francisco. Abby, welcome to Forum. Hello, thank you. Um, uh, I'm a design researcher and I work in uh,
4: technology. And uh, there's a lot of hype about AI and all the benefits it's bringing us. And I'm also very aware of the the potential issues and the problems.
3: But sometimes when I bring it up, I, you know, it's kind of pushed down, as in like, oh, you're you're a worrywart. you're worrying too much. So I wonder if there's ways that you can uh, ways that you've done, or you suggested to uh, to bring up the the potential problems and the things that we need to mitigate before harms are done. Um, in this context where everything's so hype about, here, let's just move forward and gain the value from this? Uh, such a great question and partly why I wrote the book, you know, <laughs> Unmasking yes, AI. You. So there are examples people can turn to in a shared understanding of what the risk and immediate harms are. Uh, an approach I take when I am in a place where the conversation is about the potential of AI. Just even on Tuesday, I was in a conversation for the book talk with Sam Altman of Open AI, And so there was a lot of conversation about the potential possibilities To bring in the pitfalls, what I tend to do and what I did in that conversation is to give immediate examples that people can draw lessons from. So, for example, I really believe that the hype around AI, regardless of its capabilities, leads to beliefs, leads to pressure that then hurts what an organization is attempting to do. Case in point. The National Eating Disorder uh, this, uh, uh, this Association, NETA, they bought into the hype of uh, chatbots being able to replace humans. And so after their call center workers unionized, they decided to fire some of them, if not all of them, and replace that functionality with a chatbot. So I think it was uh, May, mid-May, you get a headline, uh, you know, NETA call center workers replaced by chatbot this is the future. It wasn't even a week later that the headlines changed because the chatbot that was adopted was actually giving people with eating disorders advice and information known to make eating disorders worse. So that AI system didn't have the context that these humans who were readily dismissed had. And so the next headline was, a uh, chat bot shut down <laughs> right and i bring up that type of an example because it shows how the belief and the excitement and uh, sometimes the hasty adoption of systems can lead you in a worse place than you began even though the intention was oftentimes to be more efficient um to reduce cost uh and more vaguely at times to unlock value, because you're hearing everybody else is saying it's unlocking value. To that, I think it's really important for organizations to be clear what that value is. Last
2: um, month, President Biden issued a sweeping executive order regarding artificial intelligence. And it's been such a topic of how do we regulate this in, in nascent industry, It seems that some people, some companies within the industry themselves want regulation so they know where to go. I know that you participated in conversations about the order, what might be in it. Do you feel that the executive order got the balance right of being concerned um, about safety and privacy, but allowing the industry to keep innovating as it can?
3: I've never viewed uh, innovation and algorithmic justice at odds. I see them as complementary uh, endeavors. And when we have the insurance that the technologies we're creating create the societies we all want to live in everyone benefits uh, from that. I remember being at a recent uh, UN uh, panel when this kind of dichotomy between uh, innovation and guardrails came up, and I believe it was Professor Virginia Dingdom who talked about uh, AI currently being like a car without, that hasn't gone under any inspection safety checks, being driven by somebody without a license, on unpaved roads without traffic lights. Now saying that we should have traffic lights, we should have licensing, we should have safety checks, doesn't mean you're against vehicles or you're against innovation. It's common sense guardrail so that we can innovate uh, responsibly. And so I do think the executive order is certainly the most comprehensive uh, set of directives that uh, we have seen and I commend this full Court press effort, uh, full press, full court press effort. I do want to see it going further on an area I see seldom on any agendas uh, around AI governance, which is redress. So there is and there should be plenty of focus on preventing AI harms, preventing discrimination, making sure that systems are actually effective and do what they purport to do. But what happens if by chance we miss something? I'm not saying we (laughs) might not be perfect, but given our track record, there could be some issues, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens? And so I do think it's important that we have mechanisms for redress. And to start, we have to even know what issues are happening so this is why I continue to push for harms reporting mechanisms incident uh, tracking uh, mechanisms as well it's something we've been building uh, with the algorithmic uh, Justice League our harms reporting platform uh, but something we would want to see integrated into any kind of AI life cycle so you think about design you think about development you think about deployment and that's usually about where it goes but you once we're looking at oversight which the executive order gets into we also need to include that final piece of redress
2: well, a listener writes, "...around four years ago, I received a red light ticket in the mail referencing a car I had never driven and had no association with. When I called the police department, I was told they had used facial recognition to tie my driver's license picture to that incident. Luckily for me, they took my word for it and the mistake, that a mistake had been made. But it was quite a startling experience." You know, going back to um, President Biden's order, he talks a lot about mistakes, particularly with deep fakes. And I wonder, is that a, a real problem that you're concerned with? I know you're concerned with redress, but in the near term, is this idea of deep fakes something that we should be worried
3: about? Absolutely, particularly with upcoming elections. And this is why deep fakes are an even bigger problem now. We have generative AI tools that are open sourced. And these tools can be used to create something like a Pope in a puffer jacket, which happened (laughs) a little bit earlier, or uh, kind of uh, false images circulating like an explosion around the Pentagon, uh, which this also happened. And when that happened, there was actually a dip in the uh, stock market. And so what has become, even more dangerous is with open source tools. Many more people can create this type of false information, synthetic media, at a pace that they weren't able to do so before, so it's not like this wasn't happening, but it would take it would take weeks, not seconds, you know, um, if not months, uh, to create the levels that we're uh, seeing now, and so I do see why. You have the Biden administration and others pushing for things like watermarking uh, or content uh, credentialing as well because we're starting to move towards an age where our information ecosystems are populated with synthetic media, which makes it difficult to believe what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears.
2: You talked earlier about the difficulties in, you know, creating data. Some of them are the fact that these machine learning systems go out and sort of trawl the internet to get the information that they need. Certain authors have a, a copyright suit pending saying, hey, you can't use our work to inform ChatGPT and, and the like. Do you think that that's a fair claim to make, that the, the, w- the way we get data, how we aggregate it. We should be very careful about that. And some people should have their data protected against being used in these big data sets.
3: Absolutely. I think it's a fair concern and one I grapple with uh, as a person who has scraped data. And then one I empathize with even more as a new author, new member of the Authors Guild. (laughs) I also recorded the uh, audiobook uh, for Unmasking AI and was uh, so privileged to work with Tavia Gilbert, a voice actor who's done over 500 audiobooks so as we were recording the audiobook i was also learning about voice actors eventually i i joined the national association of voice actors and i went to an ftc Uh, convening. That was about the impact of generative AI on the creative economy. That's when I learned about these associations and what they were pushing for, I believe is so critically important for companies like OpenAI and others to not just consider, but implement. And ultimately, I think it's going to have to come down to the government setting in regulations and legislation that compel the four C's that were raised the first one consent then compensation i think people are rightfully upset to say wait a second my copyrighted data helped to make these powerful ai systems better this company just got how many billions of dollars (laughs) and i don't get any. are there data residual what's happening (laughs) right The consent piece. It's not enough to opt out after a model has been trained, you know, and that's also a lot of extra work on that artist. The control component, I think, is really crucial because it talks about agency. Some people may want to engage with these technologies as part of their creative practice. And if you have ethically made AI tools, I support that. And I think also it's important to talk about credit. There is so much ghost work and hidden labor that goes behind uh, artificial intelligence. That artificial piece is crucial here. So we think about content moderators, like those in Kenya being paid less than $2 an hour to look at horrific images to attempt to detoxify uh, some of these Uh, systems. In the book, I write about the notion of D3, deep data deletion. What would it look like to actually delete models that were trained with uncompensated data, Uh, contested data for sure, some would say, and as they do say in the uh, the lawsuits, stolen uh, data?
2: Well, you're listening to Forum. I'm Grace Wan in for Mina Kim. You know, uh, Dr. Joy, will AI ever get good enough such that you would be comfortable for like a law enforcement unit to use facial recognition technology? Or are the other aspects of our social system so problematic that we'll never be in that space?
3: Again, accurate systems can be abused. So accurate facial recognition in the hands of law enforcement that's already uh, primed to uh, racial uh, profiling or, or not well equipped to uh, contend with people with uh, mental health uh, issues. I do not think that. Uh, Upgrading the tools does not change the flaws of the system. So I don't necessarily think more powerful AI tools are what's going to allow us to deal with structural issues of racism, uh, uh, sexism, economic uh, exploitation.
2: You know, one thing in your your book is about your research and about the kind of weighty issues that face us as we contemplate more artificial intelligence in our lives, but it's also a memoir. And you write about your academic career that you've often been called a poster child of progress. I mean, you're certainly incredibly well credentialed. You have a Fulbright, you're a Rhodes Scholar, your PhD is MIT, from MIT, and you're the third generation in your family to hold a doctorate. I just, Could you talk a little bit about what that feels like, the, the idea of tokenism and exceptionalism?
3: Uh, Yeah, I think what I've taken the most from all of the privileges I've had is that there is, and my good friend uh, Tawana uh, likes to uh, remind me uh, of this, Tawana Petty, is that there's a difference between being highly schooled and being educated. So I'm highly schooled. I've checked all the boxes, <laughs> honorary degree even, right? You know, but what does it mean to be educated? What does it mean to truly understand the systems and processes around you and your role and potential to use your individual voice and our collective power to push for change? And so you don't need a Ph.D. from MIT to know that if a bias system denies you opportunity, denies you a job, denies you uh, organ transplant. uh, You've been wronged. And so I absolutely appreciate um, the privileged background and privileged educational experiences that I've had. And I underscore throughout the book my experience of living at the intersection of privilege and oppression, because I am still a young black woman and I deal with all kinds of uh, isms as I talk uh, about throughout the book. And so I truly believe that my duty is to use access to these spaces to elevate the voices of the X-coded. People like Robert Williams falsely arrested in front of his two young daughters due to uh, faulty uh, facial recognition. Randall Reed uh, arrested for a crime that happened in Louisiana while he was in Georgia. Right. And so I am Extremely grateful for the opportunities that I've had, and I know that others, had they had similar opportunities, might very well uh, be within my place. And so, I view it as the honor of a lifetime uh, to do the work that I do through the Algorithmic Justice League and to create more uh, pathways so that I am not the exceptional case or the token piece.
2: Mm. Well, it is a fantastic book. Um, It's called Unmasking AI. And our guest this hour has been Dr. Joy Bolamwini. She's a research scientist and a digital activist. But I also want to say, put a plug in there, she's also a poet. And if you get the book, you could read her poetry, which is really amazing. Um, And as I said, it's available at an independent bookstore near you. Dr. Joy, thank you so much for being on Forum.
3: Thank you for having me. And will I be able to close with a poem? You know, unfortunately, we were running out of time and we wouldn't be able to hear the
2: whole thing. But I encourage people to read the book because I've read that poem and it's a beautiful one. So um, but thank you again, Dr. Joy, for being here.
3: All right. The Android dreams entice the nightmare schemes of Vice. Thank you for having me. I love that
2: you got that in there. Amazing. This Hour of form is produced by Caroline Smith, Mark Nieto, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our digital engagement producer and Francesca Fenzi is our digital community producer. Susie Britton is our lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Christopher Beale, Brendan Willard, Brian Douglas, and Catherine Monaghan. Our interns are Jericho Reininger and Emeko Oda. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven Lindsay and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. I'm Grace Wan in Fromina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Have a great weekend. <laughs>